الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد my dear brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته so we'll be continuing tonight with our class on Al-Qawaid Al-Fiqhiyah and tonight's class is going to be on the first legal maxim which is Al-Umuru Bimaqasidiha that uh, affairs will be judged based upon their objectives. Now, as I mentioned last week, our approach to this with each halaqa, we will be taking one legal maxim, we'll be discussing its proofs, we'll be discussing its scope and then we'll be discussing the principles that come underneath it, the principles that come underneath it. And in order to understand the principles that come underneath it, it is very important to understand the actual principle itself. So the first thing we want to start off with discussing is what is the proof for this maxim? As we discussed last week, most of these maxims are based upon ahadith and ayat. So we want to take a look at these ahadith and ayat that they're actually based upon. So the first thing we will be doing is looking at the concept of niyyah in the Qur'an, looking at the concept of intention in the Qur'an. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about Intention in the Quran, he will use three main words to talk about intention. The first of them is ikhlas. Right? That they were not commanded except to make this faith, this religion sincerely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. So ikhlas is the first of them. The second of them is irada. Right? That from you are those that want this dunya, and from you are those that desire the akhirah. And then the third of them is ibtigha wajhillah, is to desire the face of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, this is a form, a, a, a metaphorical sentence in the sense that it's not literally desiring the face of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But in Arabic it is understood that it is done sincerely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So at the end of Surah Al-Layl, إِلَّا بْتِغَاءَ وَجْهِ رَبِّكَ الْأَعْلَى Except in, for the sake of desiring the, the face of your Lord the Most High, meaning the sincerely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when you see those three words mentioned in the Qur'an, it's talking about intention. Number two, let us look at the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So the famous of them is the hadith of Umar ibn al-Khattab which is the foundation for this chapter. That indeed actions are based upon intentions and every man shall have that which he intends. Every man shall have that which he intends. But besides this, you will find other uh, hadith as well. So for example, the hadith of Abdullah, uh, Jabir ibn Abdullah when he says, إِنَّمَا يُبْعَثُ النَّاسُ عَلَى نِيَاتِهِمْ that indeed people will be raised upon their intentions. And the context of this hadith is that the Prophet ﷺ was talking about good people who lived amongst bad people. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent his punishment down upon them and everyone was killed and destroyed. So they said, Ya Rasulullah, you know what about the good people amongst them? And then the Prophet ﷺ responded with this statement, That indeed people will be raised upon their intentions. So even though they weren't partaking in that evil, what was their intention in being present amongst them? Were they trying to prevent them from it? Were they just staying silent and doing something else? What was their intention, uh, you know, being there? And I believe this hadith in particular is, is very, very relevant. 
You know, particularly when you live in a society where evil is rampant and it's all around you, it's very important to have a good intention because you never know, you know, la qadar Allah, something happens and you end up dying. You know, you want to die upon a, a good state, you want to die upon a good intention. So renewing one's intention is very important as is seen from this hadith. Likewise, you have the famous hadith of um, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. When Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu heard the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, that, you know, that which is below the ankles is in the hellfire, right? So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he said, Ya Rasulullah, you know, am I going to be from those that this is applied to? Meaning that, you know, is it a sign of, of pride? And the Prophet ﷺ responded to him by saying, you're not from those that do it out of pride. You're not from those that do it out of pride. So here the Prophet ﷺ freed him from what looked like a bad action due to the intention that he had, that it was not an intention that was one of pride. So these are some of the proofs from the uh, Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Then the third level of proof is Ijma'. And then there's a consensus amongst the scholars that it is impossible to have any action except that there's intention behind it, right? It's not possible. And that is why there's so much emphasis in the Quran and in the Sunnah. And there's consensus on this that every action will have an intention behind it. Now the fourth thing we want to look at is how about a rational proof behind this? Are there states where a person can do an action that there is no intention behind it? And the answer to that is yes, but there are very, very few. So for example, a person gets to such an extreme rage that he no longer has control of what he is saying or what he is doing. So there's no intention behind that. Or something that gets done by accident. So someone's carrying a bottle and that bottle ends up breaking. That breaking of that bottle, the damage of that property is not something that was intended. It was something that happened by accident. And in other cases where people don't have control of their actions, then those are actions which there is no intention behind them. Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, he says, if you were to look at every action, there's always some sort of knowledge that is preceding that action. Meaning that there's a reason why they're doing that action. So besides when a person is not in control, even the accident that happens, there's some sort of knowledge behind it. Meaning, why is that person carrying that bottle in the first place? What is the intention behind, what is the knowledge that is behind it? He said that knowledge that a person has would constitute towards the intention. And that is why if you look at any action that is done with conscious, there must be an intention behind it. There cannot be a conscious action that is done, except that there's some sort of intention behind it. So even rationally speaking, this principle is valid, that there, the actions or the, uh, uh, the matter will be judged based upon their objectives, based upon their objectives. The second thing we want to look at is what is the stance of the intention, meaning where does the intention actually take place? There is consensus amongst the scholars that the station of the intention is in the heart. And they differed over, is this something that is constant or are there exceptions to this rule? And they differed on a, quite a few cases, but the most famous of them is Hajj. They said when the person says, Allahumma labbayka bil Hajj, or he says, Allahumma labbayka bil Umrah, is this an intention that he is making? And does this constitute his intention or not? So now, when a person says, Allahumma labbayk bil Hajj, or Allahumma labbayk bil Umrah, is he actually professing his intention and stating his intention? 
Or is he doing something that the Prophet ﷺ taught him to do? And the intention is actually still in the heart. And the answer to this, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, is that the intention will always be in the heart. That you can profess it on your tongue, but the actual station of the intention is always in the heart. So that is why a person can say something, but intend something else. And what is more valuable is what is in the heart rather than what is professed on the tongue. What is more valuable is what is in the heart rather than what is professed on the tongue. So there is consensus that the intention should always be in the heart. Now what is the ruling on professing one's intentions? Meaning, before Salah, should we profess our intention that I'm facing the Qibla, I'm about to pray four rakahs of, of Salatul Isha, you know, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the answer to that is that when you actually study this principle, you actually come to see that there's no point on professing one's intentions. Why? The reasoning behind that is, actually, we'll get to that when the time comes, but the intentions should not be professed. Intentions should not be professed. Because if there was any goodness in this, then the Prophet ﷺ himself would have done it. The Prophet ﷺ himself would have done it. So now, the first thing we want to look at is the concept of purifying one's intention. The struggle in purifying one's intentions. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us that we were not commanded except to make this faith purely for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And He tells us, say, indeed, my praying, my fasting, my living, and my dying are for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this concept of struggling with, in, with one's intention has to be there at all times. And this is perhaps one of the, not only the most difficult aspects of Islam, but it's also the essence of Islam itself, right? The essence of Islam is not the actions that are done. The essence of Islam is the intentions behind them. And the purer you make them for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then the better and the more blessed and the more rewarding the actions actually become. So if you look at you know, the statements of the predecessors, they were very you know, adamant on purifying their intentions. Like their whole journey of life was about trying to figure out how to purify their intentions. So you have one of the great scholars of Islam, Abu Ubaid al-Qasim ibn Salam, he says, لَيْسَ فِي أَخْبَارِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَمْ أَجْمَى وَأَغْنَى وَأَكْثَرُ فَائِدَةً مِنْ حَدِيثِ الَّذِي رَوَاهُ عُمَرْ عَنْهُ إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَاتِ So he says that there's nothing that has been narrated from the Prophet that is more comprehensive, more sufficing, has more benefit in it than the hadith of the Prophet and one of the other predecessors, Yusuf ibn al-Asbat, he said, that purifying one's intention from becoming corrupt is more difficult upon the person that is acting rather than you know, giving a lot of effort or a lot of hard work into something. So something that is really difficult, the hard work that you put into it, even harder than that is keeping your intention pure at all time. Keeping it constantly for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, what's important over here is in this statement, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means not only not making it for other than the sake of Allah, meaning that you beautify your salah for other than the sake of Allah. That's not what we're talking about. But even in the salah itself, making sure that your focus is there for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like a person can pray salah and literally they're not focusing on anything. They're just doing the actions, they're just doing the movements. It's not as if they're praying for other than the sake of Allah, or they're doing something for other than the sake of Allah. But the consciousness that should be for there, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is not there. 
So this is what that statement is referring to. And I'll share a last, a last one with you. Mutarraf bin Abdullah, he says, Salahul qalbi bi salah al-amal wa salahul amal bi salah niyyah. That rectifying one's heart is by rectifying one's actions. And by rectifying one's actions, that can only be done by rectifying one's intentions. What's interesting over here, he says the purity or the rectification of the heart is only seen through the rectification of one's actions. Now in our day and age, we have this you know, concept of, of don't judge me, my heart is pure. Right? So you can be doing an evil act, but they're like, my heart is pure, brother, you know, don't judge me. And I think there's a, a balance that needs to be adopted where people shouldn't rush to judge others, but at the same time, we shouldn't fear judgment either. You'll notice that the only times we fear judgment is when we know we've done something wrong. If you know you've done something wrong, you're going to fear judgment. But if you know you haven't done anything wrong, you're not going to be afraid of being judged. So when you say, don't judge me, and you're afraid of being judged, internally you know you're doing something wrong. So why not fix that, rather than telling someone, don't judge me. And at the same time, we should understand that yes, we shouldn't be judging people. But I, I bring this point up over here, because the understanding of our predecessors was the purity of the heart can only be seen through pure actions. You can't have a pure heart if you don't have pure actions. And now the chain that is developed is that pure heart comes from pure actions, pure actions come from pure intentions. And this is the chain that needs to be developed. That always focusing, always focus on having pure intentions. Then once your intentions are pure, make sure your actions are pure. And when your actions are pure, that is when your heart actually becomes pure. That is when your heart actually becomes pure. Now, why was the intention actually legislated? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala legislate intentions? I want you to think about this for a second. What is the tangible benefit of knowing your intention? Why do you need to know your intention? Besides of getting ajr and reward, what is the tangible benefit of it? Yep. Hisab, what does that mean? I do, but it's going back to the point that I was making, besides reward and punishment, okay. you know, what is the tangible benefit of one's intention? Meaning, what is the significance behind it? Basically, differentiate between different acts. Fantastic. For example, you're praying four cards, is it four cards? <coughs> Let's say your sunnah of the dhuhr, or is it the fault of the dhuhr? But differentiate between acts. Fantastic. So that is the first of them, to differentiate between the acts, right? So you have one action, so you have multiple actions that have the same process behind them. How do you differentiate between those actions? It is through the intentions. It is through the intentions. And then the second one behind them is to differentiate between that which is a ritual action versus that which is an act of obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So for example, a person can make ghusl for multiple reasons. They can make ghusl from janaba. They can make ghusl because of the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu they can make ghusl just to purify themselves. I just feel like being extra clean. Or they can make ghusl, it's a hot day. You know what, let me cool down by making ghusl. So all of these actions are going to be exactly the same. They're putting themselves in water, they're covering themselves in water. 
what's going to differentiate the reward in all of them is the intention behind them. So the ritual action becomes an act of worship with the intention behind it. So the two main objectives or the, uh, the two main objectives of legislation behind the intention is one is to differentiate between that which is an ada from that which is an ibadah, meaning that which is done ritually versus that which is done as an act of worship. And then number two, to differentiate between the acts of ibadah themselves, to differentiate the acts of ibadah themselves. Now this leads us to our very first sub-principle, our very su first sub-principle. And that very first sub-principle is understanding which actions require an intention and which actions don't require an intention. So the first principle states that which is ibadah within of itself or muharram within of itself requires no intention. That which is ibadah within of itself or muharram within of itself, meaning impermissible within of itself requires no intention. So for example, that which is an ibadah within of itself, the act of salah, the act of hajj, the act of dhikr, these are acts of ibadah within of themselves, right? There's no misconstruing that it can be done for another reason other than for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when these acts of ibadah are done, they don't need an intention behind them. It is presumed that you're doing it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala already. And that is why if a person makes intention for wudu and he goes and he starts praying right away and he says, Allahu Akbar, and then he starts to think to myself, man, you know, I didn't make an intention for my salah at this time. Then the fact that he made wudu with the intention of praying and that time for that salah has come in already, suffices him from his intention. Suffices him from his intention. Now, something that isn't an act of an ibadah within of itself. For like example, giving money to someone is not an act of ibadah within of itself. I can do it, give you money as a personal favor. I can give you money as zakat. I can give you money as a loan. All of these things will have different intentions behind them. So that in order to be rewarded needs an intention, needs an intention. Then the second part of it is that which is muharram, meaning that which is haram, also requires no intention. What does that mean? So for example, can I sit here right now and make an intention that I'm intentionally staying away from lying and backbiting and doing other things that are haram and expect ajr from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And the answer to that is no. That is not something that you sit there and make an intent that I'm not doing those things. That intention will only become present if there's some sort of discrepancy, right? So for example, I'm saying something bad about someone but for the sake of justice being achieved or for the sake of a greater good. So even though linguistically it may be backbiting, but it's not going to constitute backbiting because there's a higher objective behind it. So the act which is muharram requires no intention to stay away from either. It's just something you do and you stay away from. You don't have to have an intention to stay away, uh, to, to stay away from it. You just stay away from it all together. The second principle that we will be taking. There's actually quite a few principles I was trying to find you know, some of the more beneficial ones. The second principle is that when an intention is made, it has to be made either upon certainty or more than likelihood. Either upon certainty or more than likelihood. So for example, when a person is about to break their fast, 
At what stage can they break their fast? They can break their fast once they are certain that the time has passed or there is more than reasonable doubt that it is time to break their fast, right? That is when a person can break their fast. So the Islamic legislation is based upon those two key principles, understanding that which is certain and understanding that which is beyond reasonable doubt, meaning more than likely this is the case right now. And at that time, the actions can take place. Now, what are the levels of certainty? The levels of certainty among scholars can go anywhere from 16 to all the way down to four. And I'll share the four of them that the scholars agree upon, that these are the four minimum levels of certainty that every person will have. The first of them is a possibility. And this is what they call waham. So when a person has waham, it means that there's a possibility of it happening. The number two is shak. A person has doubt of it happening. Then the third of them is ghalbatul dhan. That without, you know, with, with reason, with, you know, beyond reasonable doubt, this is the case. And then the third of them is yaqeen, certainty. And this is when you have certain knowledge that, you know, this is, this is the case. This is the case. So now when intention is made, an intention should only be made when there's ghalbatul dhan, beyond reasonable doubt, or there's certainty. The intention should not be made before that. The intention should not be made before that. Let's get to a real interesting one, which is the one I was talking about after the Salah, which is where a person who hastens in trying to achieve something without shara'i ways, without you know, religious means, will be prevented from attaining it. A person who tries to achieve something in haste, without using the legislated ways, will be prevented from achieving it. So the example I gave after Salah was a son is really poor and he wants his dad's inheritance money. And he's like, my dad is 105 years old. He's taking too long to die. Let me just go ahead and kill him to get his inheritance. Now the issue we were discussing here is not is, you know, does it, is killing become permissible? No, killing is always going to be haram in this case. But what we're looking at is will the Sharia allow him to have his inheritance or not? And the answer to that is no, the Sharia would not allow him to have his inheritance. Because his niyyah here is completely corrupt. He's trying to bypass the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is exactly what Bani Israel did in the past. That if you look in Surah Al-Baqarah, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prevented them from fishing on Saturday. So what did they do? They put out their nets on Friday and they went on Gerat to their fish on Sunday. So did they technically do anything wrong? The action wasn't wrong, right? The action in and of itself is not wrong. Allah told them not to fish on Saturday. They didn't fish on Saturday. But what messed them up was the most malicious intention. Because they knew that what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted from them, but their, the, their love and, and desire got the best of them. So they looked for a shortcut in the sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in this case, when a person is looking for loopholes in the sharia, and is looking for loopholes to go against the sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to achieve something that he desires, then the sharia would not allow them to have it. Let me give you another example related to this. As a person that is dying, right? Um, you know, we have this bottle. His name is Muhammad. Muhammad is dying. And he has a brother whose name is Mikail. Okay, the microphone. Muhammad and Mikail, they don't get along whatsoever. So as Muhammad is dying, he says, you know what? I only have a thousand dollars 
and I have no one inheriting from me except for Mikael. So why don't I do this that in my sickness of death, I'm going to give all of my money away in sadaqah so that Mikael doesn't inherit anything from me. It's going to be extremely difficult to prove this in court, but if it can be proven that Muhammad gave away all of his money so that Mikael wouldn't inherit anything, then this would not be allowed. And Mikael would be forced to inherit from his brother in that situation. He would be forced to inherit from his brother in that situation. Why? Because he's trying to look for loopholes within the Sharia and he's trying to bypass the natural process of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's trying to bypass the natural process of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'll give you another example of this in the Sharia. So in the Sharia we have when a husband and wife are getting divorced, for the first time if they get divorced, they can come back within the period of the idda and no marriage contract is required. If the idda passes over, they're still allowed to get married to one another, but a new marriage contract is required. A second time that happens, the same thing is allowed. Now the third time it happens, then this talaq is called talaqun ba'in. That this talaq is a separating, talaq is a divorce, which is separating. And what needs to be done at that time, is at that time, the woman will naturally need to get re remarried, and will naturally need to get divorced, and then if she gets divorced, then the original husband and wife can possibly get married at that time if they choose to do so. Now, in this case, the husband and wife, they're constantly arguing and bickering. And the husband is constantly divorcing his wife. And always he realizes, you know what? I've done something wrong. I shouldn't do that. So the third time comes around. What does he do now? He tells one of his friends, look, uh, I will pay you money marry my wife, divorce her, and so I can remarry her again. Something like this in the Sharia would not be allowed. Again, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala set a set process, and you're trying to surpass that set process with your evil intention over here, with your evil intention over here. So whoever tries to hasten in achieving something without the legislated ways will be prevented from achieving it, will be prevented from achieving it. So in this case, the husband and wife even if she did get divorced and, and married again, because this was their intention, they wouldn't be allowed to achieve it. They wouldn't be allowed to achieve it. That was principle, which one? Number three or number four? Number three. So we have two more to take, inshallah. Principle number four. That which comes secondary is more pardonable than that which is primary. That which is secondary is more forgiving and pardonable than that which is primary. What does this actually mean? What is the ruling on eating dead meat? You find dead meat, what is the ruling on eating that meat? Haram. It is haram, right? No one disagrees with that. Now, during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, they were one day slaughtering a cow. When they slaughtered this cow, it was a female cow that was pregnant. And when they slaughtered the cow and they opened, they, they, they opened up the cow, they found this, dead baby cow inside. The Prophet ﷺ said, Zakatul Janin, Zakatu Ummihi. That the slaughtering of the baby cow is in the slaughtering of the mother. So as long as the mother was slaughtered properly, then there's no need to slaughter the baby cow because the baby cow was already dead at that time. So while the general ruling is that you're not allowed to eat dead meat, in this situation where the dead meat was not the intended goal, 
and the, the mother cow was the intended goal, then that which comes tagged on with it becomes permissible as well. That which is tagged onto it becomes permissible as well. Do you guys understand that scenario? So now let's take something even, I guess, more tied into this day and age. The regular ruling on insurance, any type of insurance, is that it is not permissible. This is the default ruling on insurance. The reason that is, is because when buying and selling takes place in Islam, you have to have a tangible product that you are buying, or you're buying a service. So in insurance, you're not buying a product or a service, you're buying a hypothetical scenario that if this was to happen, then this is what I will get in return. And this is what they call gharr, meaning that there's no defined product or no defined terms of sales that are present. So now, if you want to buy insurance straight up, it wouldn't be allowed. However, a person goes to a store. Let's just go to Apple, okay? You're going to buy an Apple phone, an Apple uh, iPad, you know, a MacBook, whatever you're buying. And they tell you, hey, for an extra $89, we will give you Apple Care for you know, a year or two years or whatever their terms are. And is this a separate contract? No, this is when you buy the Apple product itself. This is an add-on to your product. So that add-on to your product is something that the scholars have considered, uh, have considered permissible. So now there's no consensus on this, but a lot of scholars have considered it per uh, permissible. Why? Because the primary product that you're buying is a product which is permissible then the added on product, even though it may not be permissible within of itself, as an add-on, it does become permissible. As an add-on, it does become permissible. So in these sort of contracts, it's very important to look at what is primary and what is secondary. And the way that is defined is through one's intention. So going back to the hadith of the cow, when they're slaughtering, their primary intention is to slaughter the, the cow, the, the mother cow. They didn't know about the uh, janine inside. Now when is added on, the Prophet said that the sacrificing or the slaughtering of the mother is sufficient in the slaughtering of the baby, right? So this is how that principle is applied. That is, this is how that principle is applied. I have one more for you. I just want to know which one I should give you. Well, we'll, we'll combine two of them together. We'll combine two of them together. So this principle is going to state that the objective in words are based upon the one that is saying them. The objective of words is based upon the one that is saying them. Except in the case of the one who takes the oath. Except in the case of the one who takes the oath, then it should be based upon the one who is requesting it. Then it should be based upon the one that is requesting it. So what does this actually mean? What this actually means is that when you are speaking, people are responsible for understanding what you are saying and what you are intending. If they misunderstand, that is their problem and not your problem. Except in one case. And that is when a person is required to take an oath. And when you're required to take an oath, then it should be upon the understanding and the intent of the person that is requiring this oath or requesting this oath. So we see multiple examples of this from the story of Ibrahim alayhi salam. Ibrahim alayhi salam when his king was, uh, when, the, when the king was about to take away his wife, 
He told the king that this is my sister, meaning sister in faith. The king understood that it is not his wife and it is his sister, so he let her go at that time. Likewise, in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, when they're making the hijrah, the man kept on asking him, where are you from? Where are you from? And the, the Prophet ﷺ responded by saying, Ana min ma, that I am from water. Meaning that's what linguistically it means. But when the man understood ma, he understood a place from Iraq at that time, a place from Iraq, that he understood that that is where he was from. So did Ibrahim السلام, and the Prophet ﷺ say something which is haram? Did they lie? The actuality is no, because they are not responsible for how people understand them. In the exception of the case where you're required to take an oath. So I tried to think of an example on, on the car ride here, but I, I, I couldn't think of an example. So mm, okay, so help me work through help me work through this in my mind. A person sees another person taking um, their wallet. Okay, a person sees another person taking their wallet. They bring this to the judge and actually this is going to get too complicated. Muneeb, help me out here, man. Do you remember the example we took in class? What is an example? When we were saying that the, the, the wording should be according to the meaning of the person who required the oath. I'm trying to think of the example that we took. Sorry? Go ahead, give me a simple one. I find let's go on that, but I'll give you a better one. Okay? So a person takes another person's cookie and they're brought to court and the person's like, Do you have any proof? And he says, I, I saw him take it. So now the person that is being accused, he will, be, he, will say, he will be asked to say, Wallahi. So now this person says, Wallahi, I didn't take his cookie because in actuality, he felt that he took his cracker and not his cookie, right? So in his mind, he's thinking, I can get away with this because I, I feel it is a cracker and not a cookie. Whereas the person that had something stolen from them, to them, it was actually a cookie. So over here, it doesn't matter what word he's actually using. It has to be upon the intention of the person who is requesting the oath. It has to be on the intention of the person that is requesting the oath. Now, related to this as well in terms of the intentions behind words, a person over here, if he's constantly saying things which can be misinterpreted in the wrong way, even though they may not be factually a lie, then he has no one to blame but himself at that time. Like this is one of the principles of hadith, that if you're constantly using tawriya, tawriya is the act of deceiving people through your words, and you eventually be called a liar, you have no one to blame uh, except yourself. And the general principle is that this form of tawriya should only be used in terms of uh, necessity, should only be used in terms of necessity, right? There are certain instances where you'll be forced to, like we see in the example of Ibrahim السلام, and the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, used tawriya at that time, and it's perfectly fine. We'll take questions after, inshallah. And that's perfectly fine. But when it's not a general, uh, it's not a, a necessity or a need, it's best to stay away from it. It's best to stay away from it. Now what I want to discuss with you, and this is the last thing, is the issue of, of lying within of itself. Right? The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he allowed lying in certain instances. He allowed lying 
when you're trying to reconcile between people. So two people that are fighting amongst themselves, you go up to them and he's like, hey, you know, that person has been saying really good things about you and they want to reconcile even though they didn't say it. But you're doing this in hopes that they'll come together and uh, amend with one another. And also between a husband and a wife. Right? Those are like very sensitive issues, right? Uh, you know, uh, a wife asks you, you know, how is my cooking tonight? Or how do I look today? Like in those situations when she's ultra sensitive or having a really bad day, in that situation, a small lie to prevent a greater fight and a greater catastrophe with something that would be permissible. And this can be towards the wife and towards the husband as well. And then likewise, when people are in a state of war, then the Prophet ﷺ permitted lying because he said that war is deception. So for the sake of protecting one's country and protecting one's land and protecting one's people, then lying in that case where one gets caught is not a problem at all. So with lying and these exceptions that we see, how do we understand the principle which is النِّيَةُ الصَّالِحَةَ لَا تُصْلِحُ وَالْعَمَلُ الْفَاسِدِ how do you understand the principle that a righteous intention will not purify a bad action? Right? Because isn't this what we're seeing with the Prophet ﷺ? That the Prophet ﷺ is saying that this is the general case rule that lying is haram and it's a major sin in Islam and needs to be stayed away from except in these cases where it seems that there's an overall good and that the intention is good and therefore it would be allowed. So what's important to understand over here is that this is a general principle that good intentions will not purify bad actions except in those cases where one of two things is happening number one you have something which is mansus meaning something which is explicitly mentioned in the sharia like in these cases of lying like in these cases of lying these are mansus meaning that they're specifically mentioned or number two is that it is not something that is specifically mentioned within the Sharia, but the type of good that is being attained is recognized by the Sharia, and that there's no harm that is taking place at the same time. And there's no harm that is taking place at the same time. And that second case scenario is that, that which requires, you know, ijtihad and uh, faqih to actually look into this matter to make that decision. So for us to make this, you know, to, to, to understand this principle that the general case rule is that if you have something bad, it's never going to become good with a good intention, right? If something is haram, it is haram, no matter how pure your intention, with the exception of very few rules, with the exception of very few rules. And that is all that I had for tonight. So if you guys have any questions on what we discussed, we can discuss that. Go ahead. Um, I didn't say ambiguous, I said deceptive. Yeah. Said yeah. Right. Okay. Um, with that, um, uh, with Imam Shafiq, he, he was asked that the Quran was uh, a creation, and he replied that Torah, the Injil, and Quran, and the story about them, these three. Right. You know, does that not count as a form of a lie? No, that doesn't count as a form of a lie because when he says, and I don't know if it was Imam Shafi, but I know it was famous amongst the scholars of Hadith that they said the, the Torah, the Injil, and the Zubur, you know, all of these uh, three are created. They're referring to their fingers, they're not referring to the actual books themselves. 
And that was in times of necessity as well. Why? Because if they didn't make that statement, they would have been, been imprisoned or they would have been you know, physically harmed. So that's what I was saying is that those sort of statements should only be used in the cases of where there is uh, a reason to do so. Right? Certain people, they'll develop a, a bad habit of just being deceptive for no reason. Right? And that's what I'm trying to say is that even though according to the Sharia, you're not doing anything haram by, because you're not lying, but this being extra deceptive is something that should be uh, stayed away from because it deters trust and it, deserve, it deters you know, relationships from developing. That's the point I was trying to make. Yeah, go ahead. So if you have the intention of giving somebody money yeah. as a loan, like not as sadaqah, yeah. and you know that they're like, after a while you realize they're not able to pay you back, can you change your intention and just make it as sadaqah? Or? Can, you, can you pardon the debt? Is that what you're trying to say? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a lot easier to do than to change the intention. The general ruling is that intentions shouldn't be changed unless there's a reason to do so, right? Uh, and that is the only time intentions should be changed. But in this situation, can you pardon the debt? Yes, there's nothing wrong with pardoning the debt, and that is something that is actually encouraged to do. And if you're able to pardon the debt, then that is the best thing to do, inshallah. And, uh, I kind of have another question, but the like, same question, but different example. Sure. So let's say it's Zohar time, right? And you yeah. go to the masjid and you say, okay, I want to pray for Ka before the... Right, so you go to pray for rakah, but then next thing you know, people start lining up, and you're in the middle of, you know, you just finished the second rakah. Can you cut it short and then just, you know, change your intention, <coughs> use those two rakah as like a tiyatul masjid, <laughs> and then pray the four rakah after instead of stopping the salah and then getting up and joining, or do you have to just keep going with that four and then? I understand what you're saying. So I, I can tell you a safer approach. The safer approach is that when the fard is being established is that you break your sunnah and your nawafil prayers and you join the, the, the fard prayer. That is the general case scenario of what is meant to happen. Certain scholars have taken another approach. They're like, if you're already praying for and you're in your first rakah and they're, join, they're just about to start, so as soon as they start, you can actually just join in with them without actually breaking your salah. This is a minority opinion. And very, like, the, the general thing you need to understand is that when it came to the Salah, the Prophet was very explicit, pray as if you have seen me pray. So when it comes to Salah, we want to try to emulate the things that the Prophet either showed us or taught us to do. So now one can make Qiyas upon the teachings of Islam and come to such a conclusion, but the safer approach is still better. That the Prophet he has taught us that when the Iqamah is being given, there is no Salah except the Fard Salah. And at that time, the companions were taught to break their Salah and join the Fard Salah. So in this situation, that's what I would suggest is the best thing to do. Break your salah, you will have your reward because of your intention already, and then you can make up the, your sunnahs after the, the fard salah, and that is the best thing to do. Right? So the general case scenario is that when it comes to salah, try to pray as much as the Prophet taught us in that, in that fashion and manner. Yep. I don't understand the, the insurance one. Is it, are you basing it on the hadith of the uh, Qatar Yes. But in that case, you have the, the Janin, it's like it's impossible to slaughter it it's in, the, it's in the thing. You that can slaughter it once it's dead. Yeah, but it's dead, what's the point? Uh, but I'm saying it still can be done though. Yeah, but it's dead. I understand that, but I'm saying it still can be done. True. Like your point is moot over here. No, I'm saying what's the point of slaughtering when it's dead? That's my you can still do it if you want to, is what I'm saying. I know, I do. So there, there, I mean, there might not be a point behind it, but it can still be done. So what was your actual question though? <laughs> My question was that in this uh, case of the cow and the fetus, yes. it's not possible, like the point I'm trying to say is that when 
most likely you'll find the fetus dead, most likely. No other case. Right, correct. In, in the, uh, the cow. And then the point I'm trying to make is, in comparing it with insurance thing is that, uh, I, I think that maybe you're trying to say is that the mother and the cow can't be separated, whereas the product and the insurance can be separated. That's one of the points, yes. That's one of them, but not the main one. So let me go to another one, think about it, and we'll come back. Go ahead. So like uh, insurance is not allowed, but insurance on product is allowed. Correct. So how about the case here? Insurance on product itself is also not allowed. However, if it comes at the same time as the product, and your primary intention is not the insurance, then it would become permissible. Yes, yeah, so just comparing those, like, how about, like, Canada is a country of a lot of insurance, like, so, for example, auto insurance, home insurance, so how is even the employee, EI, and also, like, life insurance, so how about those, so, do you consider them not So, I mean, each one of them would take a separate ruling, like auto insurance, you can't own a car without auto insurance, right? You, it, it's illegal to, to do that. So therefore, something which is a necessity for you becomes permissible for you due to it becoming a necessity. And that's something we'll be discussing in, in a later class. That when you have a time of necessity, then even that which is impermissible becomes permissible for you. So that's the case with the auto insurance. With the case of the uh, home insurance, the general case scenario is that it wouldn't be allowed at all. Because there's no benefit to the home insurance other than this you know, hypothetical case scenario where one in a thousand chance or one even less than that, something might happen to your house. So rather than you paying out of your own pocket, someone else is going to pay on, on your behalf. So the, the house insurance, I feel even less comfortable with, uh, sorry, I feel even more comfortable in saying that it is haram and staying, uh, stayed away from. One of the group of scholars called Amja, uh, the Assembly of Muslim Jurists in America, they said the only time house insurance would be allowed is if a person lives in such a climate where their house is constantly being damaged. So for example, you live in like the Florida Keys, where literally in the summertime there's a tornado like every month. And there's a huge chance that every month your house could be get damaged and you can't keep repairing it. So in that case, due to the overwhelming harm and due to the likelihood of the incident taking place, they said that the gharar or the, what was, how did we define gharar? The, not, it's not just the uncertainty, but the undefinedness of the contract you know, is eliminated because it's happening so likely. Um, as for the employment insurance, then to the best of my knowledge, this is something that is enforced upon people. If you have a full-time position, you don't have an option to opt out of employment insurance and it's something that's imposed upon you. And therefore, something that is imposed upon you has a ruling of that which is permissible. And Allah knows best. Go ahead. Uh, so like the last issue, like the insurance which comes with the no, I'm talking about the employment insurance itself. So, for example, if you were to get laid off, yeah. then you would get money from the government, I, I think up to 70%, if I'm not mistaken, 75%, uh, 55%, up to 55% of whatever your salary was, they will continue to give you up to nine months. That's what employment insurance yeah, is. Right. So anything that comes by default and something that is imposed upon you is, is going to have the same ruling. Like if you have no option to out, out, opt out of it, it is something that is permissible for you. Sorry, it might be funny, but uh, since it's coming, but I got like three options, like 25 percent, 55 or 70 percent. If I take instead of 20, if I take 50 or 70 percent, do you have to contribute towards this? 
So uh, in that sort of situation, the minimal requirement to fulfill is what, what should be taken. Unless there's another reason, unless there's a reason to say otherwise. Unless there's a reason to say otherwise. So, I'll give you an example in the States, right? So, employment insurance, uh, sorry, medical insurance in the States through your company, they'll have the same things. You can choose, you know, the percentages. And um, you're, you're in the case scenario where you and your wife are just constantly having children back to back, right? And it's just one child after another. And each child, if you're not using the insurance, it's like $10,000, $15,000. So, if you took the 70% insurance, then 70% of that is covered, even though your premium that you're paying is a bit higher. So in this case where you know that, you know, Allah has blessed you with like a, a strong progeny and you're having one child after another, some scholars would allow you to take that 70% just to save that, that damage, because you know more than likely it's going to keep happening, right? So that would be like one example of it. Wallahu alam. Muneeb, back to you. Yes, so the point I'm trying to understand here now is, generally speaking, interest is permissible because of love, correct? Correct. So now, this principle comes in, the, the sub-principle you mentioned. Yes. So how do we figure out the issue of Barab? How do the other scholars who say it's haram still? Uh, do they use the issue here as well? The, so those, the, who say it's haram even then? those who say it's haram even then? Yes. Then the, the issue of gharar still being present okay. is an issue. Yes. But the issue of, you know, not every type of haram is going to become halal, except in times of need or necessity, right? And they said over here, is that how, what is the likelihood that you need this, you know, insurance for your product? If it's not at the level of need, and it's definitely not at the level of necessity, then even then, the gharar that is in it is too great to overcome the, 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 the permissibility of, of this. So how the the even like, to understand, this is going to sound very controversial, but insurance within of itself being haram is not something that is agreed upon by all scholars, right? Mufti Taqi Uthmani, he gave the fatwa that it's permissible to deal with insurance. So when you understand this concept of gharar, gharar is something that is undefined. And it'll differentiate from place to place, time to time, and customs of the people. So based upon that, they said that this gharar is undefined. And the Prophet is showing us that something as big as eating maita can be pardoned then gharar is even less than that. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum as salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So eating maita is it, okay, comparing between the sins, doing taking gharar transaction versus eating maita. You saying eating maita is a bigger problem? Is it a more clearer problem? Yes, yes. Last three questions. So last three questions. Go ahead. Product and care insurance. Sorry? Like the product and insurance. Yeah. Can you renew it? Like no. So once that original agreement is over, it cannot be renewed separately. So whatever is agreed upon in the first insurance, that is what is has to, what is uh, permissible for you. Renewing of it would not be permissible for you. Okay. Wallahu alam. Who was the second person? Go ahead. Let's say I'm buying a house with the intention of reselling it after two years. Let's yeah. So in that case, I need to be paying zakat for that two years period, right? That house or some property. Is this, does this have anything to do with intention? Yeah. So no. I'm changing my intention. Two years down the line, I'm thinking I'm not selling it, I'm not going to stay, there, stay in that house. So is that permissible? Okay, right. So the first, first your intention was to sell the house. And then your intention changed. You know, I'm not going to sell the house, I'm going to keep the house. 
So zakat is only due when it's a, a commodity and it's something to be sold. So during the time frame where it was a commodity and you're something you want to sell it, zakat is due at that time. But once your intention changes, then yeah, you don't have to give zakat on it anymore. I'll give you another example of this. The example of... No, I have Umrah. Um, a person is going to Jeddah for a business meeting. Okay? And then after the business meeting, they will have an opportunity to go for Umrah. Not, I'm not saying they made the intention, but they will have an opportunity. They have two or three days left to go if they want to go for Umrah. If they make the intention that they want to go for Umrah, then that means they have to put their ihram on before they pass the miqat, right? However, if that intention is not made until after the business meeting is over, then they put on their ihram from where they are. Then they put their ihram on from where they are. And this is the same thing that would happen over here. That while their intention is to sell, the zakat is due. But once the intention is changed, then the zakat is no longer due. And I think it's even more difficult if it's the opposite. Where your intention was, let me buy this house and I'll keep it for two years. And then after two years, you made the intention, okay, now I want to sell it. Do you have to pay the previous zakat on it? And the answer is no, because the intention to sell wasn't there. And zakat only becomes due when it becomes a commodity. And that is when the intention becomes present. Wallahu a'lam. How do you think it permissible to change intentions? Is it permissible to change intentions? Yeah. Can you think of something in particular? Personally, being in Canada and coming from a Muslim country. That's too complicated. Yeah. I'll do something simpler for you. <laughs> so a person comes into the masjid in the Ramadan and they're like, you know what? It's really hot outside. I'm really tired. Let me just sit in the masjid for a while. And while they're sitting in the masjid, they hear a reminder about the virtues of etikaf and how you can make etikaf for even one hour. So his intention when coming into the masjid was just to sit and to relax in the masjid. But then he changes his intention. You know what? Let me change my intention to etikaf. This is something that would be permissible and uh, there's no doubt in that whatsoever. As for what you are saying, there's a, a much bigger discussion that needs to take place. Because I'm, t I'm asking this because originally when I came to Canada, I didn't have intention to come to Canada for the cause of Allah. I right. just wanted to escape the corruption. Right. I think that is a niya within of itself. That is a niya within of itself. Here we'll conclude with that. Wallahu ta'ala alam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyya Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik ashadu wa la ilaha illa anta astaghfirka wa tubu ilayk.